Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Laroff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we're dedicating to what I believe is the most ambitious and most hysterically funny comedy ever produced, Stanley Kramer's It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, celebrating 60 years this year. And to share the audio stage with me, I've invited Stanley's daughter, Kat, an award-winning actress in her own right, plus a producer, documentarian, and environmental activist, and a former Golden Globe ambassador, no doubt inspired by her father's reputation as a filmmaker who unflinchingly tackled issues of importance head on. She is the founder of Kat Kramer's Films That Changed the World, an international cinema series that showcases motion pictures and documentaries that raise awareness of important social issues. Welcome, Kat. Hi, Steve. How are you? Happy to be here. I'm so glad we bumped into each other a few months ago and, and you were available to talk about some of your dad's films and the world that he created. Um, Mm -hmm. It's funny because I was just reading up on It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World that it was shot in the summertime. And since we're going through a, a rather sweltering summer in Los Angeles, I thought it was appropriate. Um, but I wanted to ask you just um, in terms of growing up with Stanley Kramer as your dad, I mean, I I consider him one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, right up there with people like William Wyler and, and George Stevens and Billy Wilder. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what it was like to have him as a dad. Well, I'm so glad you said that because um, we really need Stanley Kramer now more than ever, I think, in, in the film industry and just in the world. And especially with a film like Oppenheimer, uh, you know, he, my father made On the Beach, as you know, which was, you know, the first film to really deal with based on the book by Neville Shute. But, you know, he changed it a lot for the movie uh, to deal with nuclear war and and the fact that we may all be uh, <laughs> annihilated. So when you see something like Oppenheimer, which, you know, hits into that same time uh and post that actually but it just really i noticed that christopher nolan you know paid homage a lot to stanley kramer and a lot of the camera angles and just in the um just the dialogue in the sense the way the scenes were constructed and i know that people are comparing it to oliver stone and jfk but um oliver stone really was in, in a sense following in my father's footsteps so now's the time to really focus on my father's legacy. Um, but I didn't grow up in uh, in Hollywood. My sister and I were born in LA and we lived here for a few years, but he moved the family up to Bellevue, Washington, Washington State, to get us out of Hollywood and out of show business. But it really had the reverse effect, especially on me. And I always wanted to be in the business and my mom says I came out looking for my Klieg light. So I just went straight to work. <laughs> I mean, I was always a dancer, even like from the age of three uh, and a song and dance gal. And when we moved up to Seattle, 
Uh, they have very progressive theater there, like next to New York and Chicago, they were and still are a huge theater town. And also musically, they're very evolved. So I was a child performer. I So I had a whole show business career there. And that's when my any, father realized I was going into the business and there was nothing he could do about it. Any particular reason why he chose Washington? Um. I believe my mom knows the story better than I do, but they went up there to take a vacation. Uh, they just decided to check it out and um, they fell in love with it and and wanted to get us out of the fantasy land of what Beverly Hills and Hollywood represented and still does actually. But they wanted us to have what in their idea was a normal upbringing. Right. So they fell in love with some property there and then and they um, purchased it. Oh, what do I do about that? A phone. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's in the middle. Okay, I think someone got it. Sorry about that. Um, they purchased it, then they came back to LA and suddenly had second thoughts. Oh, we did the wrong thing. We have to get out of the deal. And so they flew back up there. And I guess what the, what the, how the story goes is when they stood out on the porch there overlooking Puget Sound, um, they said, no, this is the right decision. And so we just, we all moved up there not knowing anybody or having any, I think they only met like the Nordstrom's, you know, Nordstrom store actually started in Seattle. Um, along, along with uh, Starbucks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they met them and um, and then we just moved up there uh, without knowing a soul and had to, you know, like start like moving to a whole new, it felt like moving to another country. It was just another state. But So if you had been living in Hollywood and your fellow classmates in elementary school or junior high or high school had discovered that your father was Stanley Kramer. I'm sure the uh, there would have been some. Uh, uh, well, certainly a spotlight would have been put on you. But obviously, in in Seattle or Bellevue, I assume that you could remain anonymous. Um, no, actually, it was it was very it had a lot of pros and cons because oh. they did find out who he was cuz he the minute we moved up there like not soon after he decided to make a feature film the runner stumbles which turned out to be his last movie right but he used Rosalind Washington and and Washington state as a location it might have even been that he was thinking of making the movie and thought that was a good location to shoot it and that's how they how they found the house and we ended up moving there i'm not sure but Either way, he really brought filmmaking, you know, to that area. And now it's like, you know, a major shooting location or just Washington State in general. I mean, they made some movies there, but it was not not considered uh, another Hollywood, so to speak. And now it is. So they he also wrote a column for the Seattle Times and he taught up there at, at the universities and. Um, and I started performing in theater and singing, you know, live singing as a, because uh, I've always been a singer as a, and I did Annie, the um, the road tour up there. And so I wasn't anonymous and they really did have this preconceived notion of Hollywood folks being wild and having parties and, you know, living it up and being on drugs. And, you know, they just had this really up in Seattle, they had a really 
narrow view of what it meant to be in show business. So I think, I think everybody I don't think we were anonymous at all. It was actually worse than if we were just living here in terms of getting out of the bubble of being Stanley Kramer's daughter. It was more magnified there than it ever would have been here. Oh, wow. Well, that's certainly interesting. Yeah. Um, were you um, growing up? Um, obviously, he made the most of his uh, films before you were born. Yes. Uh, yeah, I missed all that. But I did meet a lot of the, um, you know, the stars. And um, now you said that uh, Catherine Hepburn is your godmother. Yes. And namesake. Yeah. I'm sorry. Namesake. I was named after her. Oh, well, tell Cat us about that. It's actually her nickname. But um, supposedly when I was born, she because if I was going to be a boy, I would have been Spencer after Spencer Tracy, because the last <laughs> film he made was for my dad was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which also starred Catherine Hepburn. And if I was going to be a girl, I would be Catherine. So I came out a girl and Spencer supposedly sent right before he died. I mean, he died in the summer. So it was, um, I'm a, you know, he sent over a note saying uh, from the loser because I wasn't a boy. And then uh, Catherine sent my parents a christening dress with a note saying, because everybody spells her name wrong, you know, it's K-A-T-H-A. So she said, she will forever be telling them spell it with an A. <laughs> and that's true. So I've been everything from Katie to Kate, Kathy, which is none of them feel like me, but Kat was also her nickname. So I just, my my billing is usually either Kat Kramer or Catherine Kat Kramer now. And I just think it's easier to be Kat Kramer. It's just more accessible and you know, Cat Kramer's films that change the world is already established. And um, I just, that's basically my name now, if that may, but when in Screen Actors Guild, I'm Catherine Kramer. So well, I, I don't like the KKK aspect of Catherine Cat Kramer, but. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I, I wonder really why. <laughs> uh, so which, which of your dad's films had the most impact on you perhaps as a kid? Because certainly, you know, uh, I'm sure when John Wayne's kids were talking about growing up, probably the Alamo had a big influence on them since uh, dad put most of their money into that. But mm -hmm. what, 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 what of his, of Stanley's films would you say that was the first film that really you remember? Well, there's more than one. I mean, obviously, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and with the whole Catherine connection and everything is very dear to my heart and Mad World, because I've seen that more than anything else. By the way, it's four mads. It's a mad, 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 mad world. And, and I, re I, read, <laughs> I read I read I read I read in IMDb that Stanley actually wanted to add a fifth mad, but they thought it was too much. <laughs> right. I'm thinking if we do a sequel, which we'd still like to do or a reimagining, but I think it would be a sequel makes more sense. It would be called something like it's still a mad, 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 mad world. Or maybe <laughs> you'd have to put the still in there or it's madder than ever, maybe would be good. Um, I always liked that film and Inherit the Wind. I um, had a, which Donna was also um, in, Donna Anderson. That was her debut, I believe, with my film. Right, father. right. And, and I like, uh, yeah, I like that one a lot. It's always made a big impact. And 
um, Bless the Beast and Children because it was not only about gun control, but it was an early animal rights, you know, it's recognized in all the animal rights um, communities as being a film that really was the first and it's a cult classic. And I actually reimagined the song and recorded it. Um, it was sung by the Carpenters originally, the theme song. Sure. We did a reimagining a few years ago for animal rights groups and nonprofits and performed it live at the Avalon and with Le Petit Cirque, which is an animal-free children's circus. Um, now, my, my daughter performed with Le Petit Cirque. You're talking oh, about right? Le Petit Cirque on Jefferson in Culver City? Yes, Natalie Eve Gaultier is the. Uh, yep, that's my yeah. daughter's sister. Uh, my daughter's teacher. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, this was a few years ago, but. Um, oh yeah, still, uh, they're my... still out there, and and I was able to. They recorded. They did the the children's choir in the background of the recording. So if you listen to the recording, because I have a CD of it, it's actually been released in certain markets, and I want it to go wider. And I changed a little bit of the way the song is, um, you know, because I can do that because it was written by Barry Devorzon and Perry Botkin Jr. And then the Carpenters sang it. But uh, Lainey Kazan, um, her granddaughter was part of Le Petit Cirque too, like right when I, you know, got involved with them to record the song. And so she directed the staging of it when I performed it live. Isn't that amazing? And her granddaughter yes. sings a lot of the background vocals on it. That's that's yeah, great. And it was Lily Tomlin, because she was also um, and is very involved with animal rights, and she's involved with my Cat Kramer's films that change the world. She's the one that suggested I record it with a children's choir. And so she was there when I did it um, first, the very first time. And I've actually sung it for her at, with the Petco Foundation when she was honored. And so it's become an anthem. Uh, for the children and animals, I always say, children and mm -hmm. wildlife that need our love and our voice and our, you know, voice to speak for them because they have no voice, which is really what the song's about. Well, um, it's a mad, mad, mad world isn't necessarily an anthem for anything uh, social, but it's certainly an anthem for funny. And I read recently that people think it was his only comedy, but I also read recently that the first movie that Stanley ever produced was called so this is new york in 1948 which was a comedy You're uh, right. so but it, uh, tell me why you probably have seen it's a mad 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 world so many times uh well because i've gone into comedy and you know it's 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 also i think because for for the reason that it is a comedy and it's a really funny comedy in, in the sense that it's got clean humor and I'm not, you know, I don't like everything G-rated, but I think the reason that it's lasted so long is that it doesn't resort to any, you know, lowbrow uh, lowbrow jokes. It's been, you know, all all ages can enjoy it. And I think the reason I've seen it so many times is that my mom has produced quite a few of the, uh, most of them actually for the past uh, 20 years, I guess you could say the revivals of it at the Cinerama Dome, which my father had it built for that movie. I don't know if you know that he christened the Cinerama Dome to be built for the premiere and the very first run of Mad World here in Hollywood. So we've had a lot of like, re when, when the dome was gonna close at one point, when they tried to tear it down, when the arc light was first built, 
my mom was on the city, uh, the council or whatever to save the dome. And she also presented a lot of uh, anniversaries of Mad World there and also at the um, at the American Cinematheque, at the Egyptian Theater, at the Samuel Goldwyn for the Academy, and then at the Arrow. And so I, she ended up bringing me on stage with her to co-introduce the film. And we do like a mother-daughter act. And I would, you know, give out Blu-rays or DVDs or, or prizes for anyone who could answer the trivia. Sure. And, and one time or a couple of times she couldn't make it. So I just did this, did it on my own uh, to sold out. It was always completely packed and sold out. And so that's why I ended up seeing it so many times. We we should I tell we, we, <laughs> we should tell the listeners that your mom is Karen Kramer, who yes. is an actress in her own right, Stanley's wife, and uh, we've had Karen on our show. She came on last year to talk about uh, the High and the Mighty, uh, which was one of her first projects, and uh, uh, we love Karen. Um, this movie, uh, I mean, I'm a comedy writer myself, and you, you, you and I both. Uh, I mean, my writer's writing partner is Billy Reback, who you know, and Billy and I are on a war path to bring family comedy back to the masses. And it, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, it's a mad, mad, mad world. Does not have, does not have the lowbrow comedy that seems to be pervasive today. Uh, I was once told that studios like Raunch because it makes noise and people talk about it, you know, like the hangover or whatever. But I think it just brings down the, the I just, it's not a clever way of telling stories. And um, I, I often wonder why I love the movie so much. Obviously I love the comedy spirit of it, but for me, I love the fact that it starts in the desert. And for me growing up in Los Angeles, I had a kind of fondness for desert stories. Now, most of the things I saw as a kid at the matinees were these science fiction movies that were quite prevalent in the 50s and early 60s, and they all seem to take place in the desert. I don't know why people always shot in the desert, but it has a character to itself. And the, the fact that it starts with Jimmy Durante's car barreling down the highway <laughs> out of control, bypassing these four different vehicles carrying different people it's a, it's kind of a startling opening and it's kind of a crazy opening really and you know it's the fact that it was filmed in palm springs and palm desert among many other locations like long beach and you know i mean i once knew like every single location even up at universal city on the sound or the back lot but the palm springs palm desert connection has always been really tied to our family and you know my dad used to have a house there so I grew up a lot in Palm Springs and Palm Desert, and we look upon that as like another home. And I want to eventually, except for the really, really hot summer, I want to spend more time in the desert. And we had a Stanley Kramer Film Festival just for one year that lasted about 10 years ago. Uh, I kind of want to revive that um, along with my Shiro's for Change Festival, which is coming up. But we have also a, a Stanley Kramer Mad World Award at the Palm Springs International Comedy Festival, which I'm a founding board member and um, had been a judge and, we, and my mom and I established the award there. And so that's another thing is to celebrate the fact that it was 
you know, has a lot of roots in Palm Springs and in, in the desert and to have an award named after the movie that goes to an ensemble comedy. We only, we only actually awarded it twice. And then during the pandemic, uh, we took a hiatus from it, but we're going to start it up again, I think next year. Well, that's right good now there's a strike, so it's like well, the, I, I, you've given me something to shoot for. So that if Billy and I can get one of our comedy features finished, yeah, that'd be great. Because movies, <laughs> television, and then we have live comedy. Sure. Uh, I, I've gone into stand up, and just since the pandemic, I decided just to because I've always done sketch comedy and my own solo shows and performing, but I wanted to just try the stand up thing so that I could incorporate that and also. You know, that was the only kind of live entertainment that was happening during the pandemic. It seemed like because you can do it by, you know, you can do it solo and all the, all sure, the, sure. the shows were closed down, you know. So now, now if if I wanted to make a comedy film today and put some stars into it, it's it's almost Machiavellian the way that the business now works in terms of even getting people to read a script back in 1962 your dad started sending scripts out to what I gather was every comedy performer in the world, and, yeah. or at least in Southern California. And there's over a hundred speaking parts in It's a Mad, Mad World. And almost every one of them is a comedy legend or near legend. Um, do you, have, having been around this film all these years, do you have any idea how he did something like that? I mean, obviously by 1962, he had a huge reputation from all of his award-winning films. Do you think he got those actors to come out simply based on reputation? I know they all took favored nations, which is one one way of showing that he was the master. I mean, he knew how to control all the egos and nobody had any ego. They were just, from what I understand, they all got along great. I mean, I know there was a few that didn't make it into the movie and were upset that they either couldn't do it or weren't contacted. I know Red Buttons used to always make a big fuss about that. And, uh, and, and Lucille and, Ball and Bob Hope. And I mean, there's a number of... And Don Rickles probably yeah, yeah. chastised your dad a few times. Definitely. <laughs> which is, which is no, uh, no, nothing directed totally at Stanley. I think Don did that to everybody who didn't offer him work. I did find it interesting to discover that Edie Adams' husband, Ernie Kovacs, who in 1962 was a major comedy performer, was killed in an auto accident a few weeks before shooting would begin. I was startled by that. Yeah, I knew. I know it's it's horrible how close it was. And then Stan Laurel uh, was approached to play the Jack Benny role. And apparently, he ever since Oliver Hardy had passed away, he just had given up performing, so they had to pass on it. But it wasn't, it did say that the reason Jack Benny is wearing that that signature bowler was that it was kind of an homage to Stan Laurel, which I thought was funny. Um, but Mickey Rooney uh, and Buddy Hack, I mean, we could just do an hour just on talking about the cast for this movie. Listeners, if you've never seen It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, you've got to just sit down and watch this movie. Uh, it's probably the longest comedy in history. I don't think anybody has ever done a longer comedy. Comedies generally are short, but this is not a movie with padding. This is a movie with nonstop comedy action and literally everybody's in it. Um, I, I... Even, even Jerry Lewis who made a cameo. <laughs> Jerry Lewis running over Spencer Tracy's hat, speaking of hats. Um, 
There's just, it, it's just, um, you know, it's a little sad right now. We've talked a little bit about how comedy's gotten kind of raunchy, but comedy as a force in American motion pictures has somewhat disappeared. I think that uh, Hollywood studios now are obsessed with franchise pictures, and this listeners know I rail about this a lot. That you know the Marvel Marvel universe, uh, every studio has their tent poles. Uh, I think that comedy is an important genre, particularly during difficult times. I always point to the Depression when screwball comedy was so popular because uh, people needed to get away from the depression of the Depression. And now the world is so screwed up that you would think that more comedy would be prevalent. Do you do you think that it'll come back? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're trying as hard as they can. And um, I already see, I mean, like some of the scripts I'm developing in our production company or clean comedy uh, or family comedy. And we're developing even like animation, family animation that has like the comedy aspect. So I definitely think it's coming in. But you know, how how my dad got the idea was um, apparently Bosley Crowther, who was the probably the most important critic in the business and with the New York Times, had lunch with my dad um, a couple of years before and said, you know, that all of us critics get together and we discuss you filmmakers and we feel that you, Stanley, are the most influential filmmaker of your generation or maybe even of the 20th century, but we all agreed on one thing, you could never make a comedy. And my dad supposedly said, oh yeah? Because if you <laughs> told my daddy couldn't do something and I'm a lot like that, he would always say on a dare, he would just, then he had to do it. So that's where the the um, ambition came that he was gonna make the biggest, you know, most, most madcap, biggest cast, largest comedy ever. And that's how he put all this together. And he healed a nation after the Kennedy assassination. And of course, Billy Crystal, who loves the movie, that's like his, there's so many icons uh, living in that have passed over that all said that was their favorite film. So he loved it so much. He told, um, he told us about how when his father died, he saw that movie like daily and it got him through that tragedy. So he actually came out and hosted um, one of the anniversaries at the uh, Samuel Goldwyn Theater for the Academy back in 2012. You say Billy, 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 Billy Crystal? Yes, yeah. My mom oh, organized my it and she was on stage with him and he moderated. And at that time, like Sid Caesar was still around, Jonathan Winters, um, you know, Marvin Kaplan. Uh, Mickey Rooney, they were all there at this, you know, and so we've had different moderators or different panel guests, like Mark Hamill, of all people, he loves Mad World. And so he came to the fine arts when we had uh, an anniversary a few years ago, and then he joined us on the panel and um, Barry Chase is really the last living cast member. Isn't it that that's yeah. scary. that is totally yeah. scary to think of all those performers, they're all gone except for Barry, who who I read, um, what did I read? I read that Barry Chase approached Steve McQueen of all people to get some ideas on how to play this whacked out girlfriend, <laughs> Dick Sean. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So she comes occasionally and, um, you know, during COVID uh, we actually had, I think it was last summer, it was, we had a screening at the Arrow 
And they always are doing it like for the widescreen festival with the uh, Cinematheque. And this is a movie that's so popular with so many people and, you know, new people are seeing it all the time. There's always 60% of the audience that says, I, I'm seeing it for the first time today. So, um, you know, we just had it there and Barry was supposed to come, but because of COVID was still a threat, she chickened out for coming. But we had um, uh, Scott Alexander, the writing partner of Larry Karaszewski and Scott sure. Alexander. Yeah, he loved it and he um, was on the panel and it was just amazing. There's always, you know, we never fail to get somebody of note that wants to be on the panel. So if there are no living cast members, we always have you know, icons in their own right that want to be a part of whatever we have to say about the film. I'm, I'm thinking of her character. And I think if I'm not mistaken, uh, she, her only dialogue is Sylvester, your mom. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> she said it all with her body and her. Eye and her <laughs> um, they, uh, there's so many uh, scenes that are such classics now. Um, when when Mickey Rooney and Buddy Hackett somehow get Jim Backus to fly them to Rosita Beach in that twin beachcraft, um, the, the, it's such a wacky. And at one point, I guess uh, well, I'm, I'm trying not to give you any spoilers to the listeners who haven't seen this movie. Let's just say something happens on the plane, and uh, Buddy Hackett uh, has to fly the plane. And uh, they actually fly through a billboard, uh, mm -hmm. which is such a spectacular. This is not digital effects, everybody. This is 1962, long before digital effects were invented. So uh, the people from Tallmance, which was a prominent aviation company that supplied aircraft to the movies, the, the, I think it was either Frank Tallman or, or Mr. Mance flew the plane through a specially constructed billboard live action. I think they also flew it through a hangar uh, mm -hmm. with very little room to spare. That's that's quite a scary moment for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, Carl Reiner was, um, you know, part of that sequence, and he he was there too. Carl Reiner at the when Billy Crystal hosted, so he had so much of the main cast there, and it was just amazing. Oh yeah, because Carl Reiner is um, oh right because he's in the he's in the control tower, right, right, trying to talk the plane and down with Paul Ford, the uh, Colonel Wilberforce, which is just hysterical. Uh, and of course, uh, Sid Caesar is in another plane with Edie Adams, the uh, that that Jenny from the world pre World War One Jenny. Uh, it's crazy. Um, boy, I bet you and I both would have loved to have been on that set. Oh, yes. And I just recently talked to the um, grandson of um, Leonard Mazzola, but he went by Al and he was like the dolly grip during the fire engine scene. And he died a long time ago, but but his grandson has a lot of stories. And I just recently found out the uh, lineage there. There's always somebody coming up to me saying that either they or one of their relatives or their friend worked on the film or that it was their favorite their personal favorite movie or their parents' personal favorite, or, I mean, I just, it just goes on and on, you know, and I'm dealing with a lot of people right now that I, on other projects that had something to do with it. And I think my dad would be really shocked, maybe not, you know, but I think he would be pleasantly surprised that it's become in many ways, his most signature film, you know, and it's like, 
the most uncharacteristic of what anyone expected from him, which is why he did it. And did it so well. I mean, it, it's funny because uh, directing comedy uh, is is no easy task because there's a lot of a lot goes into it, and uh, somebody fi might find something slapstick not very funny. Uh, you know, it is interesting. <clears throat> there's a kind of comedy that I'm not a fan of, which is called cringe comedy. Mm -hmm. And that's where you, you you know this. I mean, that's where you you put your uh, performer in through something so horrific, and they they somehow survive it. But it's like torture, and that was not what it's a mad world was about. I think even at times when Edie Adams and Sid Caesar are stuck in that hardware store basement and they're trying to break out because they've been locked in there during the lunch hour, and everybody's making a mad dash to Rosita Beach. Even then, it was it was done with a touch of class and dignity, and you never put your actors to the point where they're embarrassed. And it was just, it, it, uh, and Jonathan Winters, I didn't realize that this was Jonathan Winters' first film. Yes, yeah, there's a lot of funny stories about that. And he and my father became great friends, because my dad was not very social and didn't really create friendships with people that he directed, or he was very anti-Hollywood in that sense. But Jonathan and him really clicked. And there's a funny story about that he saw, I believe he saw him on the Jack Parr show or, you know, he was doing the TV uh, circuit at that time. And he got a call from my father saying um, that he wanted him to join Mad World. And Jonathan supposedly said, remember, I wasn't there. I'm just getting this from memory from my uh, mom telling the story. Uh, that he said, uh, oh, Mr. Kramer, I, I just don't think I could work with Spencer Tracy or, you know, Milton Berle. I, I just feel so intimidated. And my father kept pushing and pushing. And, and he said, uh, oh, Mr. Kramer, you just don't understand. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm, I just got out of a mental institution. I'm, I'm certifiably insane. <laughs> and my dad said, Mr. Winters, there's not an actor I don't know on the planet who isn't certifiably insane. I think you'll do just fine. <laughs> and he That's did. I mean, he did. Yeah. A lot of people think he's, you know, if you can say it, that he stole the movie. Well, his character, um, he's such a sweetheart. He's a gentle truck driver who's just trying to deliver some furniture and he's, he ends up hooking up with these crazy people who are completely obsessed with finding Smiler Grogan's $300,000 of stolen loot. And I, ha <laughs> I have to say that um, the look on his face when he's, when Phil Silvers runs over his bicycle <laughs> and leaves him in the dust. Uh, it was just just really funny. Just uh, I don't think he actually he doesn't run over. He just throws his bicycle in the street and just <laughs> excuse me. And um, it, it's just really funny. And I know that Jonathan Winters was the mentor for Robin Williams years later. Yes, yes, yeah. And, uh, the, we we don't produce comics of that ilk very often. I mean, uh, no, I, mean I got to know Robin, too, and he felt so, you know, close to the family because of Jonathan. And then uh, when Jonathan passed away, we were supposed to be at the memorial up in Santa Barbara. 
and Robin was hosting that. But we had the Stanley Kramer Award at the Producers Guild, which is a, a just a, an award at the PGA here in LA. So we were committed to that, so we couldn't go. Which I'm really, I was upset. It was the same on the same date. Mm. But yeah, I mean, people try, but the, these are original, original comedians, original talents. They weren't copies or derivative of any other person out there. So and you if know, there was going to be a new mad world, you know, the rat race had nothing to do. I mean, that was not even authorized. And they kind of got their hands slapped for using it's a rad, 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 rad world because it's it, mad world is an MGM UA production and this was I think that was paramount so they kind of were I can't really say much about it because I don't remember much how it went down but they a lot of people thought that was the remake and it was not it had nothing to do with it and it was it was cute but it certainly was not in the same league anyway so so. so I know that you and your mom have you actually developed the script yet for a sequel yeah, I wrote something a few years ago, a uh, synopsis on it. And we've had different um, variations. And then somebody that we uh, that we know that's, you know, through through um, another writer, he's written up something. He's actually written a script, but there's no green lights on it yet. And now with the strike, I don't know what's going to happen. But everybody really wants it. I mean, it's hard to ever compared to the original which is why i don't think a remake would work because no no and it have to be a sequel you know i think that what's astonishing about it's a mad 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 world is the fact that you have all these stars now this is the 60s when the studios were competing with television obviously they had to make things bigger and bigger to get people out of out from behind their little boxes and that's this is the era of the epic and uh uh Probably if you made that movie today with the same kind of star power, the movie would cost a gazillion dollars. Yes. Yeah. But back then it, they all took favored nations. So now, do you, do you have any, do you have any idea what that number was? You know, I completely forgot. Uh, I mean, they actually played it at the Cinerama Dome before it closed down during the pandemic, right? In 2019, there was a screening of it. And it ran, actually, they played it for a week and it was always sold out. They have these, um, they used to have like in Cinerama, these uh, festivals they would do at the Dome. I'm sure maybe you were even there for some of them. And they would I always was. I was. world. And, you know, again, my mom, we had a, um, a Q&A with, with Barry Chase and um, Sandy Hackett, Buddy Hackett's son and you know, it was just a big, huge turnout with all these young people seeing it for the first time. Sure, sure. So, but I've always, yeah, we have a script. There's a couple different ideas, um, but I do think there's a way of of doing a sequel. And it's so unfortunate because one of the scripts that was in development had, you know, was featuring all the ones that were still living to to play their roles again in a right. cameo. And of course, they've all, except for Barry Chase, they've all died. So we can't do that. No, it's, it, yeah. it's, it is a, a very challenging property. I'm I'm in the process of of doing kind of the opposite of it's a mad, mad, mad world. Uh, Billy and I have developed a remake of 12 Angry Men. Uh, <laughs> oh we call God. it it's a comedy. It's uh, a spoof. We call it 12 Anxious Men. Oh, that's cute. And the logistics are fairly simple. We just need a jury room 
as opposed to running all over Southern California in a mm -hmm. desert. Because it's a mad, mad, mad world is primarily, if you haven't seen it, it's a chase movie. It's three hours of, of chasing. And it, that, whereas some movies today, and I listen, I light a candle to anyone who can make a movie, but some movies, the action just goes on and on and on and it becomes too long. Uh, the, the chasing never, never takes away from these wonderful characters involved. And I, we, we should mention that Barry Chase's boyfriend in the movie is the wonderful Dick Sean, who is absolutely hysterical as uh, Sylvester or Ethel Merman's son <laughs> and and the the the, uh, the there's so many things about it. but I wanted I want to talk about some of the other films as well before we're done because I think that the listeners should be aware of of some of other if they're not and they should be um they should be aware of some of other Stanley's other talk. Now here's one that I saw on Saturday morning television for the first time and it's based on a Dr. Seuss story called 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Are you a fan of that one? Yes. In fact, that was the first Dr. Seuss made into a live action movie. So I believe that has the distinction of being the first Dr. Seuss ever put on screen. And, um, you know, that we've been trying to do a reimagining or a remake of that one as well. And yes, somebody correct. actually wrote a whole score to it. And then there was talks of having a, they did do Seussical or something with it, uh, with Dr. Seuss on Broadway several years ago. But my my mom and I have both, because we have a production company, or I guess I'll just call her Karen, because that's, <laughs> that's her first name, uh, have, you know, had many meetings on it. And, you know, we've been approached by people trying to develop it. So that's another one that could be, would have to be updated obviously because it's very much about the cold war and very much of its era you know but uh yeah i think that would be a great it could even be animated oh yeah for the listeners who aren't familiar with this movie i think ray roland was the director yes yes and uh, it's about a little boy played by tommy reddig who uh, the listeners may remember him as being on the lassie show for many years he also appears opposite marilyn monroe and robert mitchum in um uh let's see it's called it's the western uh it's called uh I, i'm blanking on the title I'll, it'll come to me in a second but he he's forced to take piano lessons and he starts to dream about a world where this literal army of little boys have to play piano every day on a piano that is like 65 yards long and Hans Conried plays their fanatical music teacher and it's it's actually so interesting and fanciful very very um very very Dr. Seuss like uh, of course being a Dr. Seuss story the other the other film hey, George Shakiris yeah. was a dancer in that. Is oh, it really? Yeah, before he won for West Side Story. Oh my goodness! He was in that. Um, your dad did uh, one of his more successful films for Columbia Pictures was The Kane Mutiny, mm -hmm. uh, which I actually was the, was brought up just in the last couple of days because uh, recently William Friedkin, the great director, passed away. And Billy Friedkin's last movie is another version of the Kane Mutiny. Right, the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Right. Kiefer Sutherland, I know it's going to be at the Venice Film Festival. 
Uh, so that's going to be interesting that he died right before that came out or is or coming right. out. He passed right. away yesterday. So Right, right. And I, I actually got a chance to work with Billy Freak oh, wow. on, on a remake of 12 Angry Men, not as a comedy, but as a real. I was at Showtime for 10 years and we did a remake of the 12 Angry Men in 1996 with Jack Lemmon in the Henry Fonda part. And oh, yeah. Billy Freakin shot it in 13 days. It was quite quite an interesting experience with an unknown actor named James Gandolfini. <laughs> it was funny you mentioned that because Showtime years ago approached us about a remake of the Kane Mutiny. Uh, and they were really serious about it, but it just never came together with uh, the right team and the right uh, star or whatever. So I guess... Uh, well, you know, Showtime did a remake, which I worked on doing publicity for, of Inherit the Wind. Right, right. With Jack Lemmon and George C. Scott, which right. was great. Another one of his films, which plays and plays and plays, is High Noon. Yeah, well, that's like the most, um, in a way, uh, titanic, but also controversial of his films. And we are actually we're producing a new version of it to go to Broadway and it was supposed to open this year, but because of everything with the pandemic and just all the changes in the industry and now with the strikes, it's going to open in 2024, but so I can't give you a date or a theater, but you're talking about a stage adaptation. Stage of version. Yeah. Eric Roth actually wrote the script oh, wow. as an homage to the original and Paula Wagner, you know, who used to be Tom Cruise's producing partner with, right. she's producing it. She did the um, musical version of Pretty Woman for stage, but this is not a musical, it's a play. So yeah, it's been announced, I, I, but everybody wants to know when is it coming? And it's been a long, long process, but it will, it is scheduled to open next, I would say mid next year, by this time next year. Well, what an interesting London. what an interesting idea to adapt high noon to a stage play very very interesting because it is if you think i guess if you think about it there it's it's a movie about you know people standing up uh to to uh to oppressiveness and of course he's that kane is this sheriff who who's not getting any support from anybody i think it could work as it could work interesting what is eric roth's script like Oh, I can't say. I, I actually haven't been able to get permission to divulge that. Okay, I'll okay. say it's a an homage to an the, homage an homage to the movie. It keeps a lot of the. I mean, they don't. He doesn't change the error or anything. Oh, good. We'll see good. how it evolves. It may he may rewrite it between now and then. He has a big movie opening, you know, at the end of the year. So he and may well of... get a second Academy Award or nomination, and then this will come after that. It's it's very good timing, very good. Sure. It's always uh, relevant. Uh, one of your, another one of your dad's early movies that I remember researching for one of my books. Um, I wrote a book called Combat Films, American Realism, 1945 to 1970, back in the 80s. And one of the movies I researched was Home of the Brave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was a very powerful, probably one of the first films to deal with racism in the military. Well, I know it was, I think, the first time or one of the first times there was a uh, African-American in the lead, James Edwards. Right. And it was originally based on a play, Home of the Brave, where the character was Jewish, but he wanted right. to make him Black for the movie version. 
And I know my dad had to use to drive James Edwards to work every morning and he had to hide him on the bottom of the car because he was not allowed onto the lot or couldn't go through the front gate. It was still, it was before, um, before the civil rights movement. So it was, he had to hide his presence is from what I've read in books. That is just so Isn't that amazing. It's a very powerful film. Yeah, I've seen it recently. I recently had Constance Towers on my podcast. And when she went down to the South to make the horse soldiers with John Wayne and William Holden, um, that famous tent black tennis player, I'm trying to remember her name now, but they had this, a situation where she couldn't stay in the same hotel as the white performers. It was horrible. Yeah. Horrible. And that movie Green Book, you know, really. Uh, oh, yeah. Really exposed that. that. But yeah, this was exactly like that. So. And before and I, Sidney Poitier was James Edwards playing that that part. Right. The lead part, you know. And then you've got him again with Tony Curtis and the Defiant Ones, which I've been see, see, seeing a lot of reference to lately. The Defiant Ones seems as fresh today as it was when your dad made it. I'm really sorry about the background noise there. Um, yeah, The Defiant Ones is really a landmark movie. And a lot of people say that's their favorite Stanley Kramer, Sidney Poitier film or the one that really was the most uh, groundbreaking. And, you know, that whole image of the white and the black hand uh, clasping on the train that supposedly was very controversial during its time. Sure. Now it's used for as a standard for all kinds of stories. And that was Tony Curtis's first and only Oscar nomination for that. And a very underrated actor. Yeah. Who, uh, kind of like he was kind of like the Tom Cruise of his day in the mm -hmm. sense that no one ever really thought he was a terrific actor or, or honored him with much, but both actors, Cruz and Tony Curtis, just terrific and always good in whatever they did. Um, and they had well, the same initials, TC. <laughs> you know, I just, I, you just yeah. brought that up. <laughs> that is funny. It is funny. So uh, let me ask you a question. What are you working on these days? What is at the top of your list? I know you're not acting much because obviously no actors are acting. Oh, I know I have a movie that a very small independent movie, the female uh, director, writer, star. She's an auteur. So I filmed that before the strike, obviously. So that's been on the festival circuit. But and I what is, I what is that the, called? It's called Rings of the Unpromised. But the one I'm really proud of is Turnover that um, came out right, it, actually it came out like right before the pandemic in theaters. And then during the pandemic, it ended up on Amazon Prime and um, different platforms. And I won Best Supporting Actress for my role in that at the Love International Film Festival, which is a really, you know, nice independent, they recognize uh, films from all over the world. It's very international. And I also was a co-producer on that. And the movie itself won, I can't even remember how many, I think 10 awards altogether in different categories. But it's very much about diversity and inclusion and representation. Um, and it's about the disabilities community. We had um, two Down syndrome actors and the, and the characters were actually Down syndrome in the script. And then because I advocate for the deaf community and the disabilities community anyway, but especially the deaf community, um, the, the director who's a, she's the writer director, it was an all-female crew. 
So I really have representation from every uh, facet of the film. She asked me, should we include deaf talent? I said, yeah, I think we need to do that. Uh, we'd have to change one of the characters actually to be deaf. And you had to cast, and you do have to, and I insisted with the with the team that we cast a deaf actress in the role because they wanted just to use an actress that was already cast in this one part and you know, have her learn sign language. I said, no, you actually have to cast authentically. So I was able to cast sit down on the casting sessions and cast the actress. And then we had a lot of deaf talent um, in one of the key scenes. So this movie really is also a family film and it's all about acceptance and love and community, but it really had so much talent representation. It was just great all the way around the message in it. And it's, all, so, it's called Turnover? Yes, and it's, and on, it's, it's on Prime and um, Tubi TV and a couple other platforms. But I only watch it on Amazon, basically, even though that's a struck company right now. Um, now it, it's it's August. Are you planning on doing anything for It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World this year? We want to. I mean, we. I, I was talking to somebody. They said do something at the Chinese that you know might be an interesting venue. Um, but since the Cinerama Dome is not opening again till next year, you know, it's closed right now. And we're right. really hoping that it will open with Mad World. It would have been so great to do it this year for the 60th. And, you know, November 7th was the opening. Right. It was either the premiere or the opening. I think that was the opening. Um, I think there would be, you know, a great venue would maybe be at the Academy Museum. That that would be the maybe perfect because it won for best sound. So sure, um, sure. You know, no, that... Academy Award nominations. I think that would be a great and one win. I think that would be a great venue for it. They want to do it. I just we have to just figure out how that's going to go. Down. Exactly. Well, we have been listening to the wonderful Cat Kramer, whose father was Stanley Kramer, the amazing filmmaker whose films will be as timeless as timeless can be, who is a filmmaker in her own right. And uh, we wish you a lot of success on all of your ventures, Kat. Thank you so much. And let's uh, let's make something happen with Mad World. I am going to work get on that. emails every day and people asking and, you know, and that would really make people laugh during the strike if it's still... If it's still happening in November, I can't imagine. But, you know, I've heard mixed things about the state of things and when it's going to finally get resolved. I hope it's sooner. Than I'm out there marching, you know. And Sure, and sure. Me too, it. as a member yeah. of the Writers Guild. Yeah. Uh, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. And uh, we have been talking about it. If you have not seen It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, then you are in store for a huge treat. And uh, T Turner Classic Movies loves the movie. They're always running it. So it'll it's always available somewhere and somewhere in the streaming verse. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Kat. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Stay safe. Thank you. You too.